Morning, everybody. Morning. I don't know if you have any special plans this, the rest of the weekend. I think we're going to Southeast Kansas to see some cool stuff. So we're going to be in the book of Psalms this morning. We're going to start with Psalm 8, very middle of your Bible. If you, uh, if uh, like the Bible's new to you, because there's always, we have some people who this is kind of a new thing. So that's, uh, you can find the book of Psalm in the middle, and we're going to be in the eighth Psalm. Um, just working, a couple things. I saw, did you guys notice when Brian was interviewing, I shouldn't have been focusing on this, but he had a bobblehead that it looked like a football player, a tiger. Uh, Brian, if you're watching online, it was really cool of you to have a Fort Hayes State University tiger bobblehead for my sake, since I grew up in Hayes. That's really awesome. Uh, recognize that black and gold. Um, he's a Missouri fan, but I'm not going to give him kudos for that. So... Um, yeah, continuing this series of just how do we think about and respond to big national issues because it doesn't matter what's going on now or in the next, I mean, there's always going to be something big happening. And I think we need to learn how to think biblically about things and how, to, how do we respond, especially how do we respond locally. That's kind of been, I think, the main theme in all of this to me is that I think globally, but that I act locally. Locally. Last week we talked about justice. Just even as I talked with somebody last night about that topic, just encourage you in all of this, this all requires so much discernment. I'm talking on a really high 30,000 foot level. Um, it, you've got to apply the Word of God and principles to specific situations. And I just encourage you, be in the Word of God, be discerning because not every cause that's thrown out as justice is truly a cause for justice, or not every organization that claims they're working for justice is doing so in a, in a way that fits a biblical worldview. So just, just be discerning in everything, um, and that requires, in the book of Hebrews, he says the way we grow in discernment is by feasting on the Word of God. The more you know the Word of God, the Word of God, the more discerning you can be. So just let's all be discerning in all of this. Um, just read this week a guy who said, interestingly, something I had not really thought about, but he said that the major issue of the 20th century was the issue of authority. Is there truth? If there is truth, where do you find it? What's the source of truth? And so throughout the 20th century, there was this increasing attack on the Bible as the Word of God and as the primary source of authority in our culture. And then he went on to say, interestingly, if, if authority was the main issue of the 20th century, he says the main issue of the 21st century is anthropology. Who is man? Where did we come from? What is our essence? What is our nature? What defines me? Is my identity given to me from somewhere outside of myself, or do I define my own identity and make my own identity? These are the questions that people in our age are wrestling with. And I could not speak more strongly, I think, when I say that we live in an age I think of great confusion about what it means to human, be human. Would you not all agree with that? There is so much confusion about that. So I want to look at Psalm 8 because Psalm 8 is one of the best places to go in the Bible to define what does it mean to be human in God's eyes. And I'm reading it out of the NIV. If, uh, and if you have, if you want to, I want to have everybody read with us. If you could stand. Um, again, if you don't mind, if you've got an NIV Bible, feel free to read out of it. If not, I'm going to have up on the screen um, that scripture from Psalm 8. And I think, there we go, there it is. So, would you please read with me from, from Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Um, I just, I spent an, a good amount of time on this psalm this week. You can go back to that other slide because we're going to keep that, that one up there for a few minutes. Thank you. Um, and this is a really great psalm. And really, I'm hoping that next summer we can go through some of the great psalms. And this is one that I really want to come back to. There's so much to say about it. But it's, it has a pretty unique structure. And, I mean, if you look at it in your Bible, the very first sentence and the last are exactly the same. The, the book ending of it that David does. And that the center of the whole psalm really is the glory of God and how majestic His name is upon the earth. So the, the focal point is God. But in the center of it, though... He ends up talking about humanity and what we're like. And I just want to take a few minutes to, uh, to look at this. Because he does say, when we get to verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind? And I'll just stop there. I mean, have you ever had that experience? Have you ever been out? Gazing at the stars, I mean, when I gaze, we were just out with students a couple of months ago. We took a, a hike in the Flint Hills uh, to see the sunset from a particular hill. And when we, by the time we get back, it's always dark and the stars are out. And I stop for a minute. And every time I see the stars, it evokes two things in me. Number one, this amazing praise of God for the, His incredible power and glory seen in the universe. And I inevitably end up singing, whether it's out loud or if I'm in a group to myself, the song, How Great Thou Art. It, it just, it, it, it brings that response of His majesty. But sometimes, not so much now, but sometimes I think for a lot of people, when you look at the, the vastness of the universe and how huge it is, don't you think about how small you seem compared to all of that? And I think a lot of people, when they see that, can feel insignificant. And it's almost like that's what David was doing maybe one night when he was praying the psalm, is that when he was considering the heavens and how he created it, he's like, what is man? You know, who am I? Am I significant? I mean, he continues, who is man that you're mindful of him? What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Two interesting words that next summer we can get more into. The mindful is just the Hebrew word to remember or to intentionally bring to mind. So God intentionally brings us to mind. What is it about us that you intentionally choose to think about us? 
that you care for them. Um, in Hebrew, it means to set your attention upon, to attend to somebody, a pretty specific word. So what, what is it that makes us so significant? And what we find out is from David is that really there's two things that make us so significant, two things. Um, that though the universe gives this, perhaps this sense to people that we're small and insignificant, the reality is, is God has put us in a very extraordinarily, um, given us extraordinary status and dignity in the universe. And it really comes in two things. Human greatness comes from two things, one in verse 5 and one in verse 6. In verse 5, he talks about the fact that we are, God has created us with greatness in our nature and identity and who we are. And in verse 6, he talks about that God created us with this, this inherent greatness in not just in our identity, but in our responsibility and our calling. And our identity is this, that he says, you have made them, you've made us a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them with glory and honor. Uh, the word angels is Elohim in the Bible, which can be translated God. It can be translated heavenly beings. There's a lot of debate. Is this talking about we're a little lower than God, a little lower than the, the angels? But it doesn't really matter that He has situated us, whatever these heavenly beings talking about, that we, that we are so elevated above every other creature that we're just below heavenly creatures in our very identity and that we're crowned with glory and honor. I mean, we talked about glory about a year and a half ago, the word kavod, the Hebrew word of to be heavy, to be significant, to have glory and beauty, a word that's used almost exclusively of God is used here of humanity where he says that we are crowned with glory and crowned with, with honor, the word that frequently is translated in Hebrew with the word splendor or grandeur, that he's given us, he's crowned us with splendor and grandeur in our very identity. And then he goes on and he says that we're also... We've been created great, not just in our identity and our nature, but also in our responsibility and our calling. Because as it says, you made them, you made us rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet. I mean, that's a, we don't always totally see that, but that's an amazing calling that God has delegated to humankind, mastery over his creation. And that that mastery extends to all created things. And that's why if, if you, know, you ran through the list again at the end over all the flocks and herds, the animals in the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swims in the path that he's given humanity this responsibility to care for and to rule over all of creation. And all of these terms, as several commentators pointed out, all of these terms in here, being crowned, glory, honor, the word ruler, to be put under the feet, they're all words that are used of a king, or of, of great nobility, and so these are all kind of regal words that he's using to describe humanity. So in this psalm, David starts with the, the heavens, and that I think that sometimes under the heavens when we see that, we can feel insignificant, and what he ends up doing is shifting and trans, um, trying to transform maybe that sense that people can have to a sense of incredible worth and value. We can, see so, we can seem so small and powerless in comparison to the heavens, but the truth is, is that God has given us stupendous worth and responsibility by the Creator. Now, when you read this psalm, it's really obvious that David is referring back to or is thinking of Genesis 1. So I'd like you to turn to Genesis 1 with me. Let's go back to the very beginning, because I want to talk, I want to look more into this idea of what does it mean to be human? And we need to go back to Genesis 1 to, to get a little more glimpse to this. The very beginning when God creates everything, and we're going to look at verses 26 
27, 28, when it comes to the point of creation to where he creates humanity. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And what we see are the exact same two things that David talked about in Psalm 8. That that our humanity lies in our nature and identity which is um, verses 20, the first part, of, it's the red, the 26 and the 27. And our, our greatness is also in the fact, in our responsibility and calling. So God created us, according to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, to reflect Him in our nature, that's the first thing, to reflect Him in our nature, and secondly, to represent God in the world as rulers over creation. So we reflect Him, we image Him, and we represent Him. We're created to live in an intimate relationship with Him, doing those two things, reflecting Him and representing Him. And I'm not going to deal very much with the representing Him part today. That would be for another time. But I do want to talk about this idea of how we image Him or we reflect Him. Because this speaks to our very nature as humans, to our identity. Um, An identity that, according to the Bible, is bestowed, that is not self-created. The fact is that we were patterned after God as our maker, and we were created to reflect Him to the rest of creation. We were designed by Him to reflect Him. Among other things, reflecting His holiness and His righteousness. And in the creation story, if you read all of Genesis 1, humans are the only creatures that are created in His image. We're the only ones who reflect Him to the rest of creation. And it's clear that it was an image and identity that was conferred on both male and female, verse 7. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. That every one of us is made in the image of God, indelibly stamped with His likeness. As Peter N. says, there is nothing in all of creation that has a higher status than humanity. We are God's greatest creation. We are His masterwork. Humans to this very day are the pinnacle of God's creation. And the man and woman were the crowning jewel of everything that God made. And if you remember from the words we just saw in Psalm 8, all that regal language, um, we are God's royal image bearers, every one of us. I don't know, I've told this story before, it's probably a couple of slides, but several years ago, I'm just going to do a quick take of it, but we came upon a vase that we were going to sell in a yard sale, and Pat asked me, what do you think we should put on it for a price tag? And I said, maybe one or two dollars. There's no, I'd never pay two dollars for that thing. And as we researched it, I mean, Pat, uh, the wise one in our family, go back if you don't mind, the wise one in our family, uh, she noticed on the bottom that the, the unusual markings and some of the things, and she said, this, I've been, you know, she had been watching Antiques Roadshow, and she said, this looks more significant than a normal vase to me. And it ended up being a several-month process, but ended up finding out that it was a Van Briggle. He only did pottery in, his, in Colorado Springs, I think, for three years before he died. He was one of the most famous American potters. His pottery had great value, 
and ended up talking to the world expert on Van Briggle, found out we had just missed, on, missed being on the uh, Antiques Roadshow in Tulsa by a week. If I'd called him a week earlier, he would have had us drive down and we would have been on TV. Uh, but God knew I probably didn't need that for my own self. Uh, and, but he said, just put it on eBay, and we did, and you can look. We ended up selling it for $4,040.40. Um, and I've never forgotten that whole experience because what I learned from it is, is if you want to know the value of something, because when I put a value on this, the value that I put on it was $2. But the true value of it was like $4,000. And what I learned from it, because I'm telling you, you, you may not think so, but I can make more beautiful pottery than that, in my opinion. I mean, the stuff I did in seventh grade looked better than that. <laughs> it was ugly, I'm telling you. But... Uh, but what I learned from that experience is this, that the value of something is determined by its creator. The value of something is determined by its creator. And we are all valuable and worthy of great honor and glory because of the fact that we were created by the infinite God of the universe. And yeah, I don't know where you are this morning because sometimes we can feel pretty invaluable. People put labels on us or put price tags on us that are pretty low. And you can start feeling like that you really aren't worth very much, but I want to tell you this morning that if that's where you are, you're created by the God, the creator of the universe, who threw all the stars in heaven, and you are more valuable than any of that. Um, and that's a good thing to know, because it's easy to forget that. So God created us in His image. We all have value. But we all know in Genesis 3 that humanity fell, right? And that they rejected the relationship with God, their relationship with God, which resulted in the corruption of all of creation, that something significant happened to humanity in our nature at that time. We all know that. Genesis 2.15, God had said that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, He said, when you eat of that, when you eat of that, you will die. And they didn't die physically that day, but what we know from the rest of Scripture is they died spiritually, that we now have a sin nature that, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins spiritually. So it brings up the big question then, in that spiritual death, did the image of God die in humanity? In that spiritual death, did the image of God die? After the fall, are humans still made in God's image, or was that image lost in the fall? And to answer that, I want to turn to two important texts in the Bible, one Old Testament and one New. So we're in Genesis, I want you to flip to chapter 9, flip to chapter 9, just a few pages over in Genesis, and we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. And this is part of the covenant that God made with Noah. That's the context of this um, after the flood. And here's what verses 5 and 6 say. Um, For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the, what? For in the image of God has God made mankind. So here we see in Genesis 9, after the fall, even after the fall, that God grounds the sanctity of all of human life in the image of God, which is still present in humanity. This prohibition and punishment of murder are founded and based upon the image of God. Now let's go to the New Testament. I want to turn to the book of James to help answer this question. James is pretty close to the back. 
after Hebrews, if you would turn to the book of James, and we're going to be in chapter 3, book of James, chapter 3. And I want to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. And here's what it says. All kinds of animals, birds, and repti- birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our God and our Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's, what? In God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. This should not be. Again, God is grounding His prohibition of speaking ill or evil of other people in the image of God. Um, You recognize that language at the end of verse 9, made in God's likeness? I mean, it's taken exactly, directly from Genesis 1. In fact, uh, the Old Testament, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that Jesus would have known and and used along with the Aramaic, um, James used the exact Greek word for likeness from Genesis 1 in this passage, so he's clearly connecting it with Genesis 1 and the creation story. So what we see in both of these texts is that both affirm the ongoing presence of the image of God, even in fallen humanity. Both Old and New Testament agree that God, that that image that God gave man in creation, that it's not lost, that it is still imprinted upon the human heart. In no sense can we speak of losing the image of God. It's not something which humanity once possessed and now we've lost. Sin did not destroy the image of God. In spite of our sinfulness, it still remains intact in who we are. The fall did not eradicate it, By no means the image still remains. Did the fall have any effect on the image? Um, It did. There was spiritual death. And that image that God has put in us is no longer perfect. We don't perfectly reflect Him anymore. Um, It's been corrupted and distorted, tarnished and twisted. Um, The fall has marred the image of God in each other, in each of us. Especially it's shattered the righteousness and holiness we were created to reflect of God that so many, so many times we don't reflect back to Him anymore. It would be like an automobile windshield that's been shattered but remains intact. It's still there but not functioning as it should. So due to sin, we don't reflect Him properly as we should. But the, but the image is still there. As Henry Blocker says, we must state both that after His revolt, mankind remains mankind and also that mankind has radically changed, that he's but a grisly shadow of himself. Mankind remains the image of God, inviolable and responsible, but he's become a contradictory image, one might say a caricature, a witness against himself. So was the image lost in the fall? And the Bible resoundingly would say no. Still indelibly it's stamped upon our souls, though corrupted and not what it was intended to be. Two thoughts I have about this, and then I want to get to implications, this idea of the, the, the image of God. First, that it's truly a divine mystery, um, every, that every human life is, more, is a miracle, and that all of us, I mean, when you look at a person, you don't, we don't normally look at a person and see the image of God, right? That's not what we normally see in people. There is more to meet the eye in every human being that we meet. 
we, um, me, how many of you saw the movie Onward just before COVID, the last Pixar? Um, it had a very important point to make, a very important point that our modern world has, has disenchanted, so to speak, everything, that our culture's lost this sense of transcendence of anything, everything, nothing's transcendent anymore, including the understanding of human nature and dignity. And that's what this script, that's what this principle teaches me is that there's this mystery and transcendence to humanity that a lot of times we don't see. That's why John Orberg says, we take long trips to see marvels like the Grand Canyon, engaged couples playing far ahead so they can honeymoon in Niagara Falls. But if our eyes could see clearly, if our hearts were working right, we would fall to the ground in amazement at the sight of a single human being. So not only is this a divine mystery that should capture my heart, and affect the way I see people. Um, this is bedrock teaching. This is bedrock teaching for the Christian faith. David Clausen says this is non-negotiable truth. And this concept to me is one of the weightiest biblical teachings that there is. Um, it is so foundational. It should be to everything we believe. Um, and I want you to know this concept of the image of God, it changes everything. I think there's so many implications from it. The, the fact that there's never been, there's not a single human being that does not bear the image of God stamped upon their heart. Everybody I see. And the fact that everybody has that stamp of His image means that everybody is valuable to Him. All human life is valuable, born and unborn. Every human possesses inherent dignity and intrinsic value. So what difference does this make? This is why I want to bring it to reality and to even this series we're talking about. What difference does this biblical teaching really make? To me, it makes all the difference in the world. It's been one of the most impactful teachings in the Bible in my own life. This teaching that human beings are created in the image of God, to me, has two really big implications, probably more, but at least two. Number one, it should shape the way we see every single person, and it should shape the way we treat every human being. First, it should, it should affect the way I look at people, not just with my eyes, my physical eyes, but that I see people, when I see them, I see a person created in the image of God. And this is, it's got to, it can't just be in the head, it's got to get down to the gut level, to my value level, that I value every human being, uh, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Uh, we can't see any single person in terms less than this. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, one of the best things I've ever read, period, the best thing ever written on the image of God in my mind says this, it is hardly possible for a person to think too often or too deeply about his neighbor. The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's why whatever the issue we deal with, nationally, politically, whatever, whatever issue we deal with as followers of Jesus, the first thing we should see in the people that are on the other side of the debate, the other side of the issue, whatever, the first thing we should see in them is that they are created in the image of God. 
whether it's somebody on the opposite side of a political issue with me, somebody who has different views on sexuality or morality than me, somebody who's an annoying coworker or neighbor, somebody of a different religion or no religion, somebody of a different racial background, nationality or ethnicity, somebody who's even set themselves against me, I should first and foremost see those people as somebody created in the image of God. Before I see the issue, I should see that reality about them. And that means that they're deserving of being treated with love and dignity and respect. So it affects not only the way I see people, it should affect the way I treat people. And we saw this in James 9 and John 3, because both texts taught us that the image of God has implications on the way we treat others. So first let me talk negatively briefly, and then I want to talk positively. Because of the image of God, it is a sin to violate in thought, in attitude, in word, or in deed, the divine truth that all humans have equal dignity and worth as persons created in His image. It's a sin to violate that image in what I think about people, what I say, my attitudes, or my behavior. Because of this teaching, we do not mistreat, we don't ignore, we don't treat with contempt or disdain, we don't demonize, we don't curse, we don't label or caricature any human being, no matter their belief, no matter their behavior. But let me talk positively. I'd rather get to the positive. This reality of the image of God, it calls us to honor the image in every single human being. I mean, that's what I've been saying. Because of the image of God we care for, we stand up for, we protect the people we talked about last week. The vulnerable, the poor, the suffering, the disadvantaged, the oppressed, the marginalized, anybody on the fringe, anybody ignored, anybody taken advantage of, anybody helpless, left out, or weak. Because of the image of God stamped on them, we care for those people. We do all this out of a love for God and a concern for any human being that bears the stamp of God's image. Because of the image of God, we stand for justice, and that's what I talked about last week. As we said last week, all of human dignity and justice is rooted, not one, in the nature of God, and that's primarily what I talked about last week, but it's also rooted in the image of God, which was bequeathed upon all of humanity from the very beginning of creation. As J. Kyla Reamer says, to act justly means to recognize that all people are God's image bearers, and we should treat them accordingly, caring for those who, in the world's terms, are considered to be the little, the lost, the last, and the least. Because of the image of God, we offer kindness and grace to everybody, to everybody. Because of the image of God, we endeavor to treat all people who are made in God's image with dignity and respect and agape love, irrespective of race, age, gender, economic status, nationality, or ethnicity. Everybody. By the way, the word the Bible uses in this regard, referring, doesn't re use the word race, it uses the word, the Greek word ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity. Um, and it's actually a smaller group of people. Um, than we even think of when we think of a nation or a nationality. But virtually every nation on earth is made up of multiple ethnos, you could say. And to God, every single ethnos matters. Uh, Mel, if you're watching, in Ghana, the Ashanti, 
the fonte, the u, they all matter to God. In Nigeria, the Yoruba, the Igbo, the Hasao, they all matter to God. In China, the Han, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Miao, the Manchu, they all matter. Even in Scotland, land of the warring clans where my ancestors come from, the Campbells, the Maxwells, the Frasers, the Stuarts, they all matter. Even some of the Scots in our church, the Forsyths, the Cathcarts, the Fullertons, the McDonalds, the Morrisons, the McGregors, my wife who used to be a McDougal, they all matter to God. Even the Hatfields and the McCoys matter to God. Because Acts 17, 24 to 26 tells us, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He does not live in temples built by human hands. And He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, He made all ethnos that they should inhabit the whole earth. God cares about everyone. It's probably not PC anymore. But as the song rightfully says, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Everybody who bears the stamp of God's image, which is everybody, matters to God. And we as followers of Jesus, we stand and we affirm that, don't we? We stand and we affirm that. Every human being should experience love, care, and welcome. Every human being. At the Christian school, they have this new poster of the kind of the five things they expect. We should have these like in all of our homes or our churches. I don't know. But I love the first one. I was looking at it yesterday up in our classroom. Love everyone like Jesus. Isn't that great? Love everyone like Jesus. Love everyone like Jesus. So because of the image of God, the way we see people, not just here, the way we see people and the way we treat people in our everyday lives should be radically affected. We treat all people with value and worth, with respect and dignity. We treat all people with treatment deserving of royalty. Because that is what we are. That's what we are. Okay, let me bring this home practically. Um, If that isn't practical enough. I mean, for me it's practical, but I want to get a little more real and personal. The truth is, none of us live this out consistently and perfectly, do we? Somebody starts treating you badly or poorly, your first thought is not to look at them as somebody created in the image of God, is it? It is so easy to make them your enemy and to demonize them. That's so easy to do, right? If somebody's standing strongly on a position, a political position or whatever, the total opposite of you, it's just not our tendency to first look at that person as a divine, somebody divinely created with the the stamp of the divine image. That's not our our first reaction. I understand that. Um, It is so easy, I think, to lose our perspective, especially now with how polarized our society is, that we quit seeing human beings as created in the image of God. So I have a question for me for you, for all of us. 
Um, and as I ask this, not exclusively, but even, I, again, let us be thinking locally. Um, who do you need to begin to see through new eyes? Who do you need to begin to see through eyes, through new eyes? Which individual? We all have somebody in our life, I'm sure. Who is the person that you've lost that picture of who they are, and it's affected the way you think about them and treat them? Which individual do you need to see with new eyes? And I also want to know, for me, for all of us, which group do you need to see with new eyes? What group of people do you need to see with new eyes? And then this, because we don't just see, but we treat people according to the image. Who do you need to begin to actively engage as a neighbor with God's agape love? Who do you need to engage as a neighbor with God's agape love? Who is that individual that you're needing to not only see differently, but you're needing to treat them differently? Who would that person be for you? And who's that group for you? Who's that group of people that you struggle to see through the eyes of God and that you struggle to want to serve and to love them properly. So who would they be? I forgot to ask you to flip, uh, to keep your finger in the psalm. You don't need to go back there. But this concept of the image of God I want to ground it back in Psalm 8, if you don't mind, because if you remember, Psalm 8, the core of Psalm 8 is the first and last sentence, which are the same, where it says this, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, verse 1. And in verse 9, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This stamp of the image of God on all of us as humans, that comes from Him. That comes from Him. That was His idea. That is his gift. Is God not great for doing that? Is he not beautiful that he created every human being in his image? Is that not amazing? Does not that not speak wonderful things of him? Does it not draw you to him that this is how he created and how he views every human being? What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swims in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we want to give him praise and honor for all of that. We want his name to be magnified because this is all His doing. Would you mind standing with me? I want to close with a very simple prayer. I was talking with Josue yesterday and had my little prayer book thing with me, and this, I just looked ahead to the prayer for today, and I thought, that's a fitting prayer to end with. It's a simple prayer written by Blaise Pascal. But would you pray it with me? And can we pray it from the heart, not just read words, but really ask this of God? So, Lord... Be in my mind and in my understanding. Be in my eyes and my seeing. Be in my heart and my thinking. Be in my life and be in my living. We pray this in the name of Jesus as always.
Amen. So, Father, make us people who, who deeply, deeply understand this core teaching of your word, that we are all created in your image, that we would work at taking our thoughts captive, and that when we see people that for some reason we don't like their behavior, their beliefs, that we would, we would see them first and foremost, take that pause to say, this is a human being, a person created in your image. They are royalty, and I need to treat them with love and respect and the dignity that you treat them with. So help us to, to see people through this lens, and Lord, help us to treat all people through this lens. And there are some hard people to love, Lord. You know, because you love us. And you still treat us with your agape, unconditional love. So help us, because of the image of God in every human, help us to treat those around us, to treat our neighbor in, with the kind of love they deserve. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So you are sent to see and to treat people this week differently. See you next week.